Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan Long Henry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples seeking to make disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Now, as human beings, we're really fascinated by the idea of the heavenly realm. What is the heavenly realm like? What kind of beings would inhabit the heavenly realm? I think part of the reason for that fascination, beyond the fact that these things are are, are fantastic to wonder about and to imagine beyond ourselves is the fact that the scriptures don't tell us a whole lot of information about these things. Not much is revealed about the heavenly realm. Its creatures are sometimes described, but we have to wonder whether the descriptions reflect reality or they're kind of made uh, uh, so that we can understand it in human terms if it's made anthropomorphic. It's a secret thing of God in Deuteronomy 29.29. Uh, Moses talks about such things. But of course, just because there's a lack of information hasn't stopped people from imagining things. And so it's good for us to spend some time to consider the heavenly realm, or the heavenly places, as we can see in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Literally, that word is the heavenlies. To what do the heavenlies refer? What can be known about those who inhabit the heavenlies? And what does it have to do with us in the here and now? And so the word heavenlies is a Greek eporanios. And there just means existing in heaven. It seems to be used to describe things or persons in heaven. It also can be used to describe the, so to speak, location itself. Hence, in the English standard, they use places as the noun that it goes with. How is the term used in the New Testament? Well, Matthew 18 and verse 35 uh, Jesus speaks about your heavenly Father. Heavenly there is that word eporanios. In John 3 and verse 12, uh, Jesus had spoken of earthly things to Nicodemus. He didn't believe them. So how could Nicodemus believe the th heavenly things, the eporanioi things that Jesus would have spoken to him? In 1 Corinthians 5, 15 verse 40 and verses 48 and 49, Paul would speak of currently existing bodies um, and the resurrection body as, as, as eporanio. Uh, sorry, that there are existing bodies, not our human bodies, as eporanio. Those would be the heavenly bodies up in the uh, up in the heavens, sun, moon, stars, things like that. But that the resurrection body would be an eporanios uh, in those passages, a uh, heavenly coming from heaven. As we read in Ephesians one and verse three, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Uh, Jesus has made us sit in the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm in Ephesians uh, one and verse twenty. And God has raised Christians up. This is a very important verse here in chapter 2 and verse 6. And raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the eporanioi, uh, in Christ Jesus, in the heavenly places, or in the heavenlies with Jesus. Uh, also, principalities and powers dwell in the eporanioi, as do the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, in Ephesians 3 and verse 10, Paul uh, says that the, uh, to the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the eporanioi, in the heavenlies, heavenly places. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the eporanioi, in the heavenlies, heavenly places. But in Philippians 2 and verse 10, those in those heavenlies will bow the knee to the name of Jesus. Paul was confident that the Lord would save him into the heavenly kingdom in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 18, the Eperonion kingdom. Christians partake of the heavenly Eperonion calling in Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Uh, 
The Aaronic or Levitical priests in Hebrews 8.5 and 9.23 serve an earthly copy of the Epiranioi, the heavenlies. Uh, so these would be uh, your temple and all those ministrations. There's a spiritual version of that that is greater and higher. Many of the patriarchs of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, died in faith, seeking a better place, a, a heavenly one, an Epiranioi one, in Hebrews 11, verse 16. Christians have come to Mount Zion. It's called the Epiranios Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn, Hebrews 12 and verse 22. So that's how that word is used throughout the New Testament. And as you can tell by that use, it, it does carry the connotation of place or location. It's the heavenly realm. Uh, certain people are said to be of that realm. God, Jesus, Christians even, powers and principalities and things of that nature. The term is also used to speak of certain things that are of that realm or qualities of that realm. And again, the reason why we're using that word in Greek is an adjective, and it's often substantive, uh, where it, you have to supply a word for it, things or places. And that's why translation will say it's heavenly places or maybe heavenly things at times, uh, as a noun that's been alighted uh, in Greek but must be there in English. But we need to be careful about the idea of the heavenlies as a spatial location. And this is a concern that we have with heaven, and therefore we also have with the heavenlies. Heaven is conceived of as up in terms of above and beyond. Uh, heaven, the atmosphere and the space area is all considered part of the heavenlies. That's how Paul can talk about uh, heavenly bodies and, and refer to s uh, stars and planets. Um, and, and therefore it's kind of above and beyond. And so that's why heaven is also envisioned as up. But in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, uh, Solomon declares that even heaven of heaven cannot contain God. Acts 17, verse 28, that in him we live and move and have our being. In Ephesians 1, verse 6, that uh, in God are all things. Give the impression that heaven might be as much around as it is up. And also, Ephesians 2, and verse 6, and we're going to appeal to that. Paul says in a, pre in a past tense, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the Epirano, in the heavenly places, as that's a past tense already accomplished fact. While spatially we remind, remain here on earth... But God has raised us up in the heavenlies to sit with Jesus. Um, and so there has to be more to the Epiranios, the heavenlies, than just somewhere up there. If at the same time, in some sense, we also are sitting there. That we share in that rule. We share in that kingdom. We share in what God is doing in Jesus. Uh, it's not just up there somewhere. It's also all around us. And therefore, we need to keep that in mind when we think about the place, so to speak, quote-unquote, the, the spatial location of the heavenlies. If we're looking up, we're, we're missing half the picture. But what about all these beings that were mentioned as being in the heavenlies? God is our heavenly Father, and Jesus is his right hand in Matthew 18, 35, and Ephesians 1, verse 20. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, yes, we have approached the heavenly Jerusalem by being part of the people of God and the church. And there's also there an innumerable host of angels present in those heavenly places. Angel is, is from the Hebrew malach and the Greek angelos, and, and, and properly used of messengers, and times being used of humans carrying messages. But angels are spiritual beings that are made by God to accomplish his purposes, something we see in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 21. Uh, there are ministering spirits sent to do service for those inheriting salvation, according to Hebrews 1.14. We get that impression in Psalm 91.11 as well. In Matthew 18 and verse 10, Jesus warns that the little ones, angels, see the face of their father. And that's why you shouldn't want to cause them to stumble. 
so it might be impressed to see the face of the Father. Even other angels have to cover their face, so that shows uh, proximity there. Uh, there are other spiritual beings that are akin to angels and may actually be angels themselves. Uh, are archangels, cherubim, and seraphim. Now, Michael is called the archangel, or the head of the angels, in Jude 1 and verse 9. That's consistent with his portrayal in Revelation 12 and verse 7, where Michael and his angels uh, fight war with Satan and his angels, and, and Michael and his angels gain the victory. He's probably of the angels. Archangel is just a level of, of, of authority and power, perhaps more than nature of being. Now, we've got these cherubim. Cherubim is a Hebrew word. And uh, what does it refer to? Well, in Genesis 3.24, we're told that cherubim were placed at the garden to keep humans from entering it back in. Uh, in Ezekiel 10, verse 15, Ezekiel identifies that cherubim were the living creatures that he saw carrying the throne of God in his vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. That they had four heads, four wings, the faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And these are very uh, terrifying concepts. Uh, when we think of, I mean, the English word cherubic comes from the cherub, singular of cherubim. And we get that from the idea of something uh, beautiful and, and, and innocent. You, you can think of those uh, angel uh, draw, uh, paintings, the, you know, little prepubescent boys, kind of the view there, kind of very, you know, fat cheeks, red fat cheeks, and, and, and kind of cute. That's not what we have here. They're terrifying beings, and that's something to keep in mind, the difference between uh, tradition and what is actually made known in Scripture. Now, seraphim are seen around the throne of Yahweh in Isaiah 6. Now, it's the only time we see that term. The, the term is related to burning, and maybe it's a kind of fiery angelic being. And the thing that complicates this is that when John in Revelation 4 and following sees uh, living creatures, they seem to be cherubim, because they have the similar description as what Ezekiel sees as cherubim. But they're in the place of the seraphim. They're around the throne of God. Maybe they're both. Maybe seraphim are a class of cherubim. Uh, we're not really told much. The nature and delineations among the angels, cherubim and seraphim, are not spelled out explicitly. But these angels, archangels, cherubim, and seraphim together constitute what's called the host of Yahweh, the army of Yahweh, the, the group of Yahweh. And Yahweh is Yahweh of hosts. And this is where it's important to keep in mind when Jesus says that the Father could send uh, 12, 000, 10, 12 legions of angels, which is 12,000 plus angels. And there's a multitude of them beyond number, uh, beyond our imagination, perhaps. We just don't know. We're not told a lot about it. The heavenlies, though, aren't just positive. There's also that dark side, the powers and principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, in other passages, uh, Satan, also called the devil, is seen as a head of these forces in Matthew 25 and Revelation 12. What we know about Satan is he's a spiritual being antagonistic toward mankind and behind the evil in the universe. Now, Ephesians 6 and verse 12, uh, Paul will speak of the world rulers of wickedness in a passage otherwise speaking of resistance against the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, he speaks about the God of the world having blinded the people this age. John says the world is under the control of the evil one in 1 John 5 and verse 19. And these are all likely references to Satan. So there's Satan there. In Matthew 25 and Revelation 12, we're told that Satan has his angels. These angels have not been made by him, but they are those who follow after him. In Luke 11, 17 through 18, we're given the strong impression that Satan is prince of demons. 
Now, demons might be distinct creatures from the angels that follow Satan. It's possible, but probably not. In Ephesians 3.10, 6.12, and in Colossians 1.16 and 2.15, we read about these things called powers and principalities. These are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Now, some have suggested these are impersonal forces, but that kind of seems inconsistent with everything else revealed. They're most likely created beings. These might be the Elohim of Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a very puzzling psalm. A lot of people uh, read a lot into it. A lot of people have taken a lot of interesting theology from it. Uh, in Psalm 82, um, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the Elohim. God, some version, judges. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are Elohim, your gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, context, Asaph might be referring to these powers, or principalities, to divine beings in charge of various organizations, nation states, things of that nature, and they're being rebuked because they're not upholding God's purposes. That's a possibility. In Daniel 10, 12-13, we're told that there was an angel who was sent by God to answer Daniel's prayer. Very clear. Daniel prayed to God. God heard the prayer. God sent an angel to Daniel to answer the prayer. But the angel said he was hindered by the prince of Persia for 21 days. And that angel, Michael the Archangel, had to come on in and fight him off to allow the angel to pass. If Michael the Archangel has to fight somebody off, odds are it's not mortal. It's not referring to an actual king of Persia. Sounds like a, div a spiritual being that has power enough to hinder an angel of God. Again, very strange passage. No argument there. But if we're going to make sense of it, that's what it seems to be. One of the powers. So they seem to be what we might call the spiritual interiority of collectivities. So just like... Uh, there's a culture or spirit almost in, uh, in in the organization. It might be its power as principality. Uh, could be from anything from organizations, corporations, and nation states. Uh, they have the power that we grant them. It's very important to note that in Colossians 2 and verse 15, Jesus triumphed over them on the cross, displaying them openly. And that word triumph is the same word used to describe when a Roman general, after victory, would lead the captives in Rome uh, to be celebrated and feted for having defeated them and that they would be executed. Um, so Jesus has triumphed over these powers and principalities. And the unity of the church, despite all the different places the people come from, is a manifestation of God's wisdom to the powers and principalities, according to Ephesians 3 and verse 10. So this Epiranios that we've been talking about is the heavenly realm. It's ruled over by God and Christ. It features spiritual beings, some of which are remain obedient to him, and many who have used their free will to go their own ways. Great. This is an interesting speculative thing, right? What does it have to do with our lives on earth? Well, for those who close themselves off from it, it wouldn't seem like it would have any real power at all. Because for a few generations now, not a few human beings have tried to convince themselves that the material creation is all there is to existence. And so everything that happens is therefore explained in terms of some kind of natural force or another. Now, the spiritual forces are quite adept at what they do. If you don't want to see them, 
odds are you won't. And you're going to ascribe whatever influence they might be having to coincidence, fortune, or perhaps even your own agency. After all, doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the God of this world blind people from seeing the light of the gospel? And would not the God of this world be the most successful if he were able to blind believers to his influences and the spiritual conflict in their midst, the kind of which Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, 10-18? And yet, we must be careful about being too open and exposed to the heavenly realm. In Galatians 5, verse 19, sorcery is condemned as a work of the flesh, in verse 20 as well. Now, many presume that the dark arts, magic, necromancy, psychic powers, voodoo, and things like that have no power like idols. While there are passages that say that idols are nothing, there's no passage in Scripture that says that the forces of evil, the dark magic, there's nothing to it. No, no, no. The Bible never says that. It says believers should stay away from it. In fact, in Exodus 7, 22 and 8, 7, the Bible says Egyptian magicians used their magic to turn the Nile to blood and to bring a plague of frogs. And they saw the plague of gnats, and they said that is the finger of God because they couldn't recreate it. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 28 that a necromancer of Endor conjured up the spirit of Saul, Samuel for Saul. Now, who are we to say, well, that was just superstition, that's just the way it appeared, and that it wasn't actually true, isn't actually according to what is written. We must stand firm against the temptations of the evil one including the temptation to dabble in matters pertaining to the heavenlies and the forces of darkness. And this is speculative, but it might be something of what is meant by the deep things of Satan that Paul, Jesus warns about in Revelation 2 and verse 24. Now this gets us to a topic that often is brought up, very interesting to a lot of people. What about demon possession? Is demon possession still a thing? Now some people think that, uh, a lot of people actually think it's been done away with, Others, though, have seen things that lead them to believe it very might be possible. Now, in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, we're told that we're not supposed to give heed to doctrines of demons. Everybody still recognizes there's doctrines of demons out there, so there's still demonic influence. So it would be very difficult to suggest that all demonic activity has been eliminated. Now, maybe demons have found other ways to act that don't involve possession. They may find ways of influencing people in other ways that we might discuss in greater detail another time. And yet, it really doesn't do a whole lot of good to speculate about their activity. But we definitely need to be on guard against any kind of demonic influence that might come upon us. We also need to be open to the work and power of God and his people. According to Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, the great prayer there that uh, Paul offers. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, should we really imagine that God would allow the forces of evil to be active in his creation while he sits by idly? In Hebrews 1 verse 14, we're told angels are ministers to those obtaining salvation. 
Who knows what they might be doing? The idea of guardian angels, not as far-fetched as you might imagine, although the idea that when bells ring, they get their wings is something we don't see in Scripture. God would strengthen us through his spirit within us. Who knows what that might look like? God had an eternal purpose in Christ, we're told in Ephesians 3 and 11. Wouldn't that be as true now as it is 2,000 years ago? And so we need to be open to the possibility of seeing the work of God in his creation to accomplish his purposes. And if we are that open, we might be surprised at what we see. And even if we may wonder what may go on in the heavenlies, we must always remember that the heavenly beings are extremely interested in what transpires in the creation, and that we are in the midst of a spiritual war. It is a war we did not choose, but it's no less real and it's no less critical. And that is why Paul insists to the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. In Ephesians 6.10, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And he goes on to describe the different parts of that armament. And we get so wrapped up in that armament. It's powerful armament. We need to realize what it's there for. It's because we're in a war and our fight is not against our fellow people, but against the forces deceiving our fellow people. And they're still there. And they're still active. And so we must still stand firm. So yes, we can see the scriptures do say a few things about the heavenlies. They are the Eperonios. They're related to heaven, up, as indeed, but also in our midst. God is in the heavenlies, but so are the spiritual forces of darkness. We must confess that they exist. We must recognize they are involved in the creation, even if we don't perceive how. But we should not despair, because we know this. Jesus has gained the victory. He has triumphed over the powers and principalities in Colossians 2 and verse 15. Jesus can provide us liberation from the powers and principalities over this present darkness. He triumphed over them in death and resurrection. He rules over heaven and earth. So yes, there is a heavenly realm. There is a conflict there that has shaped our entire lives, even if we have not seen it. We must therefore stand firm in Jesus and know that since he has gained the victory, we can gain the victory in him. We're so glad that you've joined us. If this has benefited you, we encourage you to share it with friends, family, and others on social media. If we can be of service, you've got a question about something we talked about, maybe you'd like to have a Bible study or do a correspondence course, maybe you'd like to come meet with us. If we can be of any service, please find us online. We're at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on various forms of social media. If I can be of service personally, you'd like to uh, contact me on my website. My website is TheVerbalVitae.com, www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.